morning. And uh, if you would, open up to Colossians chapter 3, and we'll be getting there just in a minute. So now we're moving on to the next section in Paul's letter to the Colossians, having spent a good bit of time in chapters 1 and 2, talking about uh, this false teaching that uh, Paul was addressing and the implications of that false teaching. Paul now is moving on to this new section, which is talking about some implications for how we should live as believers in Christ in light of our common faith in Christ. So let me pray for us as we get going. Father, I thank you for the grace that you have shown us in Christ. You have shown us great forgiveness and patience. Your patience was to lead us to repentance. And so, Lord, help us to see the, uh, the depth of the sin in our hearts. Help us to want to put that away and help us to desire to cling to the cross and to put on this new life in Christ as your people and help us to learn to care for one another well as your people. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. In good books and in film, you'll see a number of plot devices, and one thing that you'll see a lot is the idea of a paradigm shift, something that they they trick you. Uh, And sometimes it's not just a trick. Sometimes everything was laid out there beforehand. In fact, uh, the author may have intentionally put all the details, but there was just something that you missed. There's something there that you just couldn't see. And you just didn't have eyes to see rightly what was laid out before you. And then suddenly at the end, there's this big reveal. And you see everything for what it really was. And you're left thinking, what just happened? You have to go back and and read it again. And you were short-sighted, right? Looking back, everything was laid out there, but you couldn't see it. And they didn't even hide it from you. But you just didn't see it clearly. As much as you tried, you didn't have eyes to see the truth. And what this is taking advantage of is so often we see the things we want to see. And if somebody leads us down a path, then our mind willingly bounds down that path. And some might call this tunnel vision or blindness. But the point is this, that what we assumed before was not right. And then suddenly you see things in a different light and it is clear. And if we're honest, we've all experienced this at some point in our lives. Where we just, we're seeing something wrongly. When somebody believes in the gospel and comes to Christ, it changes the way they see the world. What once they counted as gain, they now count as loss. What Once they desire, they now see how destructive it is. And the Savior they once mocked, they now love. So if you look briefly back at Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, it introduces this idea. And you who were once dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. 
And there we see the great transaction. Right? Christ forgives sins. And he takes those who were dead and makes them alive. And this changes everything. And for those who are in Christ, they before they saw their life in terms of their own desires and passions, and now they're made alive together with Christ. And in Colossians chapter 3, Paul lays this out for us. He, he talks about what it's like to live this new life in Christ. And he urges us to put to death what is earthly in us and to put on the new self, restored in the image of Christ. Now, last time we were in Colossians, we were discussing these, the theme of slavery and freedom in Christ. And so this week we're going to look at life and death. That is, what takes place when somebody puts to death the old self and puts on new life in Christ. And so, living in light of new life, we are to put to death what is earthly, and we are to put on the new self. And that, that's the passage in a nutshell, in a sentence. Let's read Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. And I've put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. So living in light of this new life, we're to put to death what is earthly. We're to put on the new self. So this is about more than some sort of philosophical understanding of life and death. Uh, Certainly there is much symbolism to be found in Scripture concerning life and death. Baptism itself represents death to the old self and new life through union with Christ. But our understanding of that spiritual reality has implications for our lives. It's where the rubber meets the road in our faith. So when Paul talks about life and death here, he's actually talking about actually putting to death the deeds of the flesh and actually living for Christ. And the truth is, this is Christ's work That's the truth that we understand. And the result is, we put to death the old self and we put on new life. 
And so let's look to live in light of new life this morning. And Paul wants us to see things rightly. Lord, give us eyes to see our sin and to put our sin to death and to put on the new self. All right, let's, let's look at verses 1 through 4 again. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. If then you have been raised with Christ. Right, so that's a key phrase to start off this section. It assumes something. It assumes something about what's coming afterwards in Colossians chapter 3. These things describe those who have been raised with Christ. And notice the imagery here. Those who have died to self and are raised with Christ have a new identity and are being conformed to his image. So what we're talking about is for those who have experienced new life in Christ and the kind of change that goes along with it. So this also transitions us into this new section of Colossians. Earlier, Paul was dealing with false teachings and highlighting the preeminence of Christ in contrast to those false teachings. And in response to what those false teachings were focusing on, which was religious observances and uh, spiritism. And now Paul goes on to discuss some implications in light of who Christ is, in light of our trust in Christ. This is implications for who we are in Christ. So first, Paul addresses the deeds of the flesh. And then he urges us to put on the new self and the associated fruit of the Spirit. And then he goes on later in the chapter to discuss practical applications of what a new life in Christ looks like. But all of this is preceded with, if then you have been raised with Christ. None of this will work if you've not been raised with Christ. At the heart of the matter is whether someone is trusting in Christ. The fruit in their lives will only follow if they have trusted in Christ and are raised with him. So Paul urges them, in light of that, to set their minds on things that are above and to know that their life is hidden with Christ in God. So if our minds are set on things on the earth, how will that appear in our lives? For some, it will show up all the time because their sin so thoroughly rules them. We talked about that in the last sermon on Colossians. Sin having dominion over us. And for others, they may hide their sin to live peaceable lives in the world, to get by. But then when difficulties come, the idols of their heart appear. They're revealed. Because they pick their idols over other things. Right? The real motivations of their heart come to life because their idols become more difficult to obtain. And when the pressure of our lives come, we have to run to Christ and the cross. And when we don't, we're going to see the deeds of the flesh in full display in our lives. So let's look at those now. Put to death what is earthly. Starting in verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of those, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, 
But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. So Paul discusses two lists here in this section. And there's the first list in verse 5, and then there's another list in verses 8 and 9. And you have to ask, why two lists, Paul? Why? He is often repetitive, but I think something else is happening here. There's a different quality to the items in the first list and the second list. In the first list, he uses the word idols. And in the second list, he uses the word practices. So in the first list... We see the motivations of the heart are idols that drive our actions. In the second list, we see examples of those sinful actions that result from the idols. The the first list is a little deeper and digging down to these motivations that drive our sin. The second list describes ways that sin is manifested. So, So let's look at that first list. Put to death our idolatries. Sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desires, covetousness. So all of these Paul calls idolatry. I've heard people say that they they don't like to spiritualize the concept of idolatry. That uh, they think of idolatry as just physical idols. But here Paul specifically calls these things idolatry. It extends beyond just the worship of of physical idols. It includes the idols of our hearts. And idols come in many forms, and there's other kinds of idols that are not explicitly mentioned in the text here. Success, power, control, approval of others, pleasure, leisure. But for those that are mentioned here, let's talk about them a little bit. Sexual immorality, this is the word porneia, which could be sexual acts of anything sexually impure, And it can imply all sorts of sexual immorality. But it's used here in context not just to imply the acts, but rather the idols behind those acts. And as we move on, we're going to see more and more general terms used. Impurity or uncleanness. Uh, This is more than just a general term. It can be impure thoughts, something that defiles our impurity and the way we uh, think about others. Instead, we should be above reproach, right? Uh, passions and evil desires. That's even more general. Th- these terms are um, describing our desires that drive things like our, our anger and jealousy. Our weaknesses and negative emotions that are behind our behaviors. And to understand this, you may ask the question, what do I desire that I cannot have? What's the thing that I want? And that may point to some passions. Covetousness, our desire to have things that belong to others. This is greed and often a desire for material possessions. John has a similar idea in 1 John 2 when he says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So in this section of Colossians, we're moving from abiding in the desires of the world to abiding in God, our creator. 
Idols are all about the motivations. Right? When we sin against others, we should look for those motivations beneath the surface. What is the thing in your life that causes conflict with others? What is it that you can't live without? You may lie to get it. You may beg. You may manipulate others. It's what you're focused on. Paul tells us to set our minds on Christ. But there may be some motivations that we hold close that we're not willing to admit to others, and we set our minds on those things. We may suppress those idols such that we ourselves don't even see them clearly. We may attempt to justify them and say, it's okay, it's it's not a problem, it's normal. It's not an idol at all. Know that even our surface idols can be deceiving. They often have roots that go much deeper. We rarely have eyes to see what's really happening underneath the surface. We have to look carefully at the situation and understand where our true motivations are. Have some introspection. Ask yourself, what's going on? This takes some thought, some reflection. It's good to reflect on our spiritual state from time to time. To ask ourselves hard questions and to learn to be honest with ourselves. About our true intentions and even to receive input from others. Be responsive to that feedback. And so we should see the extent of evil in our heart. It's easy to overlook the remaining sin in our lives. We may think we're in good shape, good to go. The other person's the problem. Look at verses 6 and 7. But on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. We should want this to become past tense in our lives. These things, in these things you once walked. When you were living in them. We should listen to others when they try to help us see the extent of idols in our hearts. We should also understand that our idols are often disordered desires. One of the reasons that it can be difficult to see our idols clearly is there's a good form of many of these desires. But sin twists them. And so... Our sin redirects what is good and turns it for evil. A desire for relationship is replaced with lust. And a desire for fulfilling vocation and imaging God well is replaced with selfish ambition and a desire for control. And what is good and created by God becomes twisted and distorted. And our idols do not remain hidden forever. They reveal themselves in our behaviors. We may be able to mask those behaviors for a time, but the stronger the idol, the more we're separated from what we want, then the more those behaviors will appear. So Paul moves on in verses 8 and 9 to talk about put to death these old practices. 
right? These are the surface struggles that people see in our lives. The bad behavior that gets us into trouble with others. It betrays our idols. And notice how these may not come out until the right situation arises. Anger, our response to not getting what we feel we deserve. We sense an injustice and so we get angry at the other person. Someone has not treated us right or we at least perceive it that way. Wrath, a troubling of our heart that's deep-seated, tainted with anger, tinted with bitterness. Malice, our willingness to devise evil towards another person. Slander, speaking in a way that destroys the reputation of another. Obscene talk, being rude and coarse. Lies, speaking falsehoods. Each of these actions selfishly desire that evil come to another person. They're the opposite of love, where love is to will that good come to someone. And Paul says that we should see to putting off the old self with its practices. We should be sensitive to these behaviors in our lives and what they reveal. So our actions betray our idols and motivations. We have to dig beneath the surface to find the idols behind these old practices. But if we do dig, we will find that the idols are there. And what we want, what we feel entitled to, what we think that we cannot live without, any of these will shape our motivations in a situation. And and we will then act out when we don't get what we want. And then we should also recognize that some sinful, that these same sinful behaviors may, may come from different idols. Right, so when you sort through your motivations behind your sin, understand that the idols of your heart may not be readily evident. They may be masked. You may assume wrongly. You may not be honest with yourself. But whatever the idol or behavior, Paul is urging those who have trusted in Christ to put them all away. You have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in the image of its creator. So we are called to live in light of new life and therefore to put on the new self. Let's look at verse 10. And have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. So see that you've put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self. The old self is the heart ruled by idols. And its practices are those things that we do in order to feed those idols. But for those who have put off the old self and put on the new self, we will see first that there's a new image. That image is a replacement for those idols. That's verses 10 and 11. And then second, they will put on new fruit in their lives, the fruit of the Spirit. And that's in verse 12. And then we're also going to see 
Third, that they put on a relational forbearance that impacts how they relate with others. It's in verse 13. So new image, new fruit, and new relationships. So first, the new image is Christ's image. Right? This new identity is a replacement for our idolatries. Where once we sought our own goals and motivations, our lives are now hidden with Christ and God. And we desire to see his kingdom come. His will be done. And to serve others. And specifically, Paul says that we have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. This new image is about restoring what was lost in the fall. We were created in God's image, but that image was tarnished by sin. And we live with the effects of that sin as we see our desires twisted by a sinful heart. And that heart manifests these destructive behaviors in our lives. And that's the old self that Paul says to be put away. But in Christ, the image is restored. So starting with the gospel, the good news that Christ died for our sins, those who trust in him put on a new image. It's a renewed, restored image formed in the image of Christ. And now the theme of image is carried throughout the scripture. It's about both who we are and what we do, who we are is this identity, right? Our identity is now found in Christ. And what we do, that's part of what that fruit of the Spirit is, right? We, bearing God's image fulfills the mandate that's given to us in creation to rule well under God's authority. And your life is hidden with Christ and God. I really think verse 3, that phrase, captures both of those thoughts being a new image, and then living in light of that new image. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. And so in the context, the image sets the motivations for how we live our lives. Being restored in knowledge after the image of our creator means that our identity, our motivations and desires are conformed to his image. And when we meet trials, when we turn to Christ instead of to our idols, where before we we live for our own interests and passions, and now we turn to the cross. Knowing our weakness, living in the image of Christ means that we receive our nourishment and our help from Him. It's also about being renewed in knowledge. See the world through new eyes. You see things differently. You see things rightly for the first time. Where under the old life, sin prevents us from seeing rightly. Now, renewed in knowledge after the image of our Creator, we see clearly. Our life is hidden with Christ and God, and we seek to honor Him and to see His kingdom come. And our motivations have been transformed from death to life. And suddenly we see the world in a new light. Like the big reveal or plot twist, we now see what was there all along. Nothing looks the same anymore. We were blind, but now we see clearly. 
And notice that he adds in verse 11, there is neither Greek and Jew, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. The new image implies that we put on Christian unity. All of these people in Christ are one people. His people. They belong to a new kingdom. And when they turned away from their own personal kingdoms that they were seeking, when they were seeking their own idols, they joined Christ's kingdom. Together they joined the same kingdom under God. Their motivations are now aligned to see Christ's kingdom come. And that's part of the new birth. Life and death in Christ is holistic. Justifications for our sins is an important starting point, but salvation takes us even further. It's about union with Christ. And that union with Christ has many implications. Our heart motivations are aligned with His. Our, our identity is now found in being part of His kingdom. And we can now experience the joy of relationship with Him and also with His people. So have you experienced the joy of unity, of meeting with believers in Christ when they are different than you. And the point of unity is not our common culture or upbringing or jobs or where we grew up or where we went to school. So much of unity in our society is found just in common experiences. We went through common watershed moments in our lives People went to the same high school and they knew the same people growing up and they were present for the same experiences. And that's where they find their fellowship and unity. But those common experiences do not form the same kind of unity that is found in Christ. Christian unity is found in a common gospel. And so here there is not Greek or Jews, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So what's the foundation for your unity with others, specifically with other believers? Also, you know, think about it this way. Is it unity or is it uniformity? Our unity should be found in the gospel. And our motivations, these idols, are replaced by Christ. Now, in in light of the new life that we have in Christ, we see the work of God's Spirit in the lives of His people. Paul lists five fruits in this section. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Remember, he's addressing chosen ones, holy and beloved. These are people who have experienced new life in Christ. It's only through Christ that you will see this kind of fruitfulness in your life. You won't be able to fake it if the fruitfulness is not natural. Genuine fruit comes from the work of the Spirit in your life. Compassionate hearts, having the sensitivity to others, their needs and sorrows. Kindness shown towards others. Humility concerning your evaluation of yourself. Do you recognize yourself as the chief of sinners? Right. Meekness, a, a stability, control, gentleness in how we act towards others. It's not weakness. 
It's being steadfast, gentle, and patient in the face of challenge. Patience, being able to wait on the right time. Taking the time to work through something rather than impatiently resorting to anger because you're not willing to do the hard work. Patience is doing the hard work. Leaning in and seeking to constructively bring good even in a situation where others are trying to make it difficult. Patience is hard. But it's a fruit of the Spirit in our lives. So all of these are contrast to the elevated egos and idol worship that characterize our sin. When what is earthly in us, from verse 5, is replaced by the image of God, from verse 10, then we could put on the fruitfulness of verses 12 and 13. So if you are in Christ, then you have been called to this. And one way to gauge this is to ask, where do you see the fruit of the Spirit revealed in your life? Are you more humble than you were a year ago? Have you grown in patience? If not, why not? Are you... If you're not actively growing in Christ, have you neglected the word of God in your life? Have you refused the teaching, encouragement, and admonishment of the church? When a brother comes to you with a concern, do you resist their admonition? That's ultimately pride. The question, are you a quicker forgiver, has always stuck with me. It's a great measure of your spiritual state. And I've asked people before, are you quicker to repent and quicker to forgive? What's the trajectory in your life? Where are you headed? Are you growing in Christ-likeness? So the point is that these fruits are characteristic of a believer. If the fruit of the Spirit is not present in your life, then it could mean that the Spirit of God is not present in your life either. So the illustration of fruit is so familiar to us. It's used in many different places in Scripture. So we're all familiar with it. We could easily miss the weight of the illustration here. The healthy tree bears fruit. It's natural to what the tree does. It's the spirit in our lives that brings forth fruit in the life of a believer. So would others describe you as having a compassionate heart? Do they see kindness in you? What about humility? Would others describe you as a prideful person or a humble person? Even if you're strong, are you meek? Is your strength under control? How patient are you? And is that patience redemptive? Does it seek to engage in difficult situations to bring about good? Not just to stop sin, but to point to Christ. James chapter 4 says, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist... There will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is 
First pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And there, James, we see how the fruit is applied in the context of relationships with the ultimate end of bringing peace where there was conflict. And twice in this section, Paul moves from the spiritual reality to the implication for living our lives in community with others. Often, our fruit is born out in relationships. The new image leads to Christian unity based on our union with Christ, verse 12. And the fruit of the Spirit should also bear fruit in how we live together with others, verse 13. So let's put on relational forbearance. Bearing with one another and forgiving one another. So bearing with one another. We're we're called to bear with the weaknesses of another person. Living with them in an understanding way. Forbearance is patience that is, sorry, well forbearance and patience are redemptive. It's not running away from the issues, but rather it's facing them head on in a restorative way that's the opposite of anger, wrath, and malice. As an example, God himself shows us forbearance. In Romans 2, verse 4, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? These attributes are applied in the context of relationships. When dealing with conflict, we have to maintain humility and gentleness, be patient with the other person, and bear with them. And this is love as we reflect Christ to them and demonstrate the forgiveness we found in Jesus Christ. And this should shape our interactions as we bear with one another. Now, forgiving each other, we we see here that forgiveness is given because God has forgiven us. It specifically says in the passage, the the one leads to the other. Our forgiveness is empowered by what God has done for us. If you struggle with forgiveness in your life, do you have a good appreciation for the forgiveness that God has shown toward you? Or are you okay? The other person is the problem. And there's a reason why verses on forgiveness, and this isn't the only place, remind us of the forgiveness that we have received from God. So what is forgiveness? Paul says, if anyone has a complaint against another. So there's a transgression that has occurred here. Someone has caused harm, and they deserve to be called out. But forgiveness is different. On one level, it's not holding sin, the sin of the other person to account, but it's more than that. We might deserve better than what they gave us. They might owe us something. And forgiveness is to forgive them the debt And knowing that this is what God has done for us helps us with our attitude of forgiveness towards another person. We all need forgiveness at some point, but it's more than just attitude. 
It's also about restoring relationships. So in Luke 17, 3, Jesus says, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. This is forgiveness that is carried out in the context of ongoing relationships. You see the same thing in Matthew 18. The idea is to call the wayward brother into a um, situation that's restorative, that restores that relationship. We express forgiveness toward the other person who is continuing to walk in community with us. It's both offered and received. And of course, for genuine restoration, this presumes that the other person is repentant and comes to the table and is willing to receive that correction. But the bigger point is that both sides have to live this way with one another as they walk in community together. Where we're headed in Colossians chapter 3 is this an image, a picture of what life in Christian community together looks like. So taken together, bearing with one another, forgiving each other means that we live together with care and understanding. The one who is weak is helped by the other. The, there's vulnerability here as we walk together. There's understanding as we value the other person as being conformed to the image of Christ. It goes back to image. And so God forgiving us is what enables us to forgive. If you're struggling with forgiveness, reflect on the forgiveness that God has shown towards you in Christ. We live as people who have been forgiven. And so we are to forgive one another. In any struggles that you have, go back to Christ and the gospel. And patience and forbearance mean that we long to bring the gospel to bear on our lives and relationships. We seek to take what in human terms would be destructive, our anger and jealousy, and redirect them to restoration and ministry toward one another. Look look at your relationships as ministry. Your marriage, your family, your friendships, your co-workers. All of these are opportunities for ministry as you respond, not just with the words of the gospel, but by demonstrating restoration and forgiveness that comes through Christ. And we're also called to bear with one another and to live in forgiveness. Communicating with those who have offended us can be difficult. There's fear there. Often people are afraid that there's potential conflict and there's the possibility of future harm. But if both sides are willing to bear with one another and forgive each other, then true reconciliation can come. And that's what we're called to pursue. When we have experienced God's work in our lives, we receive eyes to see things differently. Right? Like the good novel, story, a mystery, or a caper where we were fooled for so long, once the truth is revealed, we see everything for what it really is. And when our sin is revealed, then we see our lives for what they are. We're called to live in light of that new understanding as we turn to the cross. And so, living in light of new life, we put to death what is earthly, and we put on the new self.
And in doing so, we live in ways that bear out the work of redemption in our own lives. Bearing with one another, forgiving each other. In upcoming sermons in Colossians, we'll see in more detail how this is worked out specifically in the context of, of walking together as a body of believers. And until then, let's put to death what is earthly, let's put on the new self, and let's bear with one another and live with one another in forgiveness, just as God in Christ has forgiven us. This podcast is brought to you by Redeemer Church, a community of believers in Fort Worth, Texas, committed to equipping God's people to delight in God's glory and declare that glory to our neighbors and the nations. For more information, visit our website at RedeemerFortWorth.org.